This is Simo, where we help you see more. Hi, I'm Alex Semenzato, and this is the Simo Podcast. How you doing? Hope everyone's having a great day and a great week. Uh, we're here in for another episode of the Simo Podcast, and we have an awesome guest who is really driving positive change in the art world. Her name is Marine Tangai, and she has been working in the art world for the last seven years. An advocate for artists from a young age, Marine managed her first gallery at 21, opened her first art gallery in Los Angeles at 23, and finally created her current business, MT Art, to promote the artists she believed in across the globe. MT Art is the first artist agency promoting influential visual artists and specializing in talent management, building, growing, and accelerating their careers. Marine is a thought leader, writer, and frequent speaker on contemporary art. She's a member of the Thousand Network, the Creative Industries Federation, the Association of Women Art Dealers, and a fellow of the RSA. In this episode, Marine shares a lot of insight into how she set up MT Art, the challenges overcome, and ambitions for the future, as well as giving us some context around her two most recent TEDx talks. I hope you enjoy and thanks for listening. Hi, Maureen. How are you? Hello. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you very much for coming on to the SEMA podcast. Um, finally pinned you down. Very busy lady at the moment. Well, thank you. <laughs> How have you been? Have you had a good week so far? Yeah, mad busy. So we only just Wednesday and I feel I've gone through three weeks. So that must mean it's a good week. <laughs> That's pretty good. And we're enjoying the uh, kind of the humid summer at the moment in uh in London. Um, but before we start, um, we're going to have a great conversation today. Uh, we're going to start with some icebreakers. So writing, drawing, or taking pictures? Um, writing for sure. Swimming pool or beach? Beach. I'm born from, on an island, so I can't say swimming pool. <laughs> okay. Uh, room, desk, and car. Which do you clean first? Um, that's a difficult one. So I don't have a car. I have a bicycle. So that eliminates one. Um, I think the room. Okay. Uh, London, New York or LA? Um, definitely London. You have two teleportation devices. Plant one in destination A and destination B. Where would you place them and why? You mean location? Yeah, yeah. So you, have, you can go from A to B. With a um, teleportation device. I think, I, so I come from a small island off the west coast of France called Ile de Ray. So I think I will just go and see my family very regularly. Um, so I will plant one here and one in Ile de Ray very quickly. Nice. Um, Favourite cocktail or smoothie? Um, so I'm heavily pregnant. So sadly, all <laughs> non-alcoholic cocktails, which are definitely not as nice as an alcoholic one. Uh, normally gin and tonic or a martini. Have you been um, the Sipsmith gin twos? They're non-alcoholic, but not as nice. Yeah, I can't say sadly that I'm that excited about anything <laughs> I've tasted. <laughs> I do miss deeply the alcoholic ones. <laughs> um, Colour or texture? Um, I actually think both. I generally can't separate the two. Okay. And lastly, a quick fun fact about you. Um, I used to eat Haribo's literally every single day, but it seems that the baby doesn't like them. So it's oh, really? the first time in my life for about 10 years I don't eat them. Wow. Okay. Maybe it's a good thing. <laughs> I'm sure my body's feeling much healthier. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for being on. Um, 
you are kind of speaking a lot at the moment. You've done a couple of TEDx's. Um, it seems that MTR is really taking off. You've been featured in Forbes 30 under 30. Um, tell us about MTR. What, what is the concept? Yeah, so basically MTR is a first-hand agency for visual artists. Visual artists being painters, captors, uh, people who make video art or sound art or photography. Um, it sounds like a very normal business because in music, sport or film, you have major talent agencies. But actually in my industry, you have galleries. And the way my industry sees artists is many people who make works on walls. The way I see mine is people who produce visual content. And so you can have art integrated in cities, you can have um, visual content for digital platforms, you can have brand collaborations, and of course it works. Um, but what we buy into and what we support with them is an artistic vision. And I think there's a, so much more than just a production of artworks in that. And where did this idea come from? So I've actually been in my industry for 10 years. Um, and I've always, always loved art. I've always enormously respected artists. and. But I kept on finding the gallery experience very frustrating. Um, first of all, because you see two people a day, so there's very little audience engagement, which, um, as you said, I love talking and I love meeting people. So that was obviously an issue for me. And I think the other thing was that um, if you just only concentrate on the production of artworks, then you only concentrate on who can afford buying artworks, which is a very small proportions of people. And... Um, I dreamed of, um, you know, my artist being like famous musician on stage where you see tons of people looking at them and kind of listening to their music on social media. So I want people to kind of enjoy the art when they're on the walls of cities and or follow them on social media or just really be inspired by what they do visually. And I felt that the Gary model was simply not building that kind of fame, that kind of influence. Uh, but yet I felt that they deserved that kind of influence. That's interesting. You said that I've never thought about it in that way. And I wonder, wonder kind of why it's almost like art's always been there, but not celebrated as much as music, for example, which is quite interesting. Well, I think it's, it's first of all built itself uh, to be quite elitist at first. Um, so, you know, the art world didn't want you to be uh, feeling included. They want, they built it on just a bit like luxury. They wanted you to feel excluded and then you had to buy into it. So I think that didn't, that kind of played a part. Um, but I think that the, if, if you kind of strip back to the basis, um, a baby when he's born, um, you know, the first thing is, is he's looking around and we as a generation consume way more visual than the generation before, like through advertising, TV, social media, everything. So those people should really be at the center of anything that is visual. What is sad is that they're not. Um, and also that means that influence the fact that we potentially don't have the most inspiring visuals uh, to consume from all those platforms because the creatives are not the one driving it. Um, mm. It's the other way around. Um, so I think there's loads of potential. I think our generation is working up to it, frankly. Um, and I'm excited because I think that generation of artists is going to have way more opportunities than the previous one. Um, and they're showing that they can therefore be more successful earlier as well, which is really exciting for them. So I'm going to talk a bit more about what you're doing at MTR, but I want to kind of rewind a bit and talk a little bit about your journey. Old school Marine, you said you're from a small island off the west coast of France. So how did you come to kind of be into to the role today? I mean, were you always an art lover? You know, how how did that evolve, that, that career development journey? I think for me, creativity was an escape. So when you come from a small place, um, you know, I come from a place where there's 6,000 people a year. So there's not much diversity of content per se. What I loved about creativity is that it was an exposure into 
um, basically multiple contents that I couldn't have direct exposure to physically, uh, whether it's through books or music or art, I was able to escape into different ways of thinking, different types of people and different places. So I thought that was incredibly valuable. Um, I think the, you know, of course it feels mad to kind of be in that place today, but there's been a lot of steps in the way. I'm someone that is, um, very driven, my mum will say. And also, if I want to go and get something, I will work really hard to go and get it. It uh, doesn't mean that there hasn't been many mistakes and failures along the way, but I was lucky that I set up early. So I had my first internship at BBC at 19 after I did a degree in France on philosophy, psychology and literature. And very quickly, I was able to be a young gallery manager. And very quickly, again, I was approached by an investor to own my own gallery very quickly because I was in LA, I was exposed to talent agencies and then got MTR, but all of this still takes 10 years. Yeah. Um, and there's loads of setback and there's loads of tears and there's loads of like difficulties as well. Um, but I think it became clearer and clearer by the day that the creators were my concentration. And I think, you know, if I think of what makes me happiest every day, um, whether it's me as a young kid or whether it's me now, it's still the same thing. You know, it's people who are creating brilliant ideas, expressing them very powerfully through the creative medium. That's what makes me really happy. So I don't think I've changed. I think I've just understood how to make it a career and how to um, make it a business that works. And going back to that, that kind of key moment in time uh, when you were 19, you were interning at BBC, you, you mentioned then that, you know, there's an investor that kind of provided the opportunity to go to LA and set up your own gallery. How did that situation come about? So I think at BBC, I was um, interning on the culture show. So it was Andrew Graham Dixon at the time. Um, I, I was talking a lot um, to everyone there. And luckily I got spotted to be the gallery manager of the Outsiders Gallery. Now my first boss was Steve Lazaridis. Uh, Steve Lazaridis discovered Banksy basically. So he was very much one that had all the best street artists. My first show was Connor Harrington, which is a big guy here. And then that was the beginning of JR as well. So the, what those guys had, which I think was amazing, is that not only they were recognized in the art world, but they also inspired the crowds outside of the art world, which I think was the best school for me at 21. Um, the investor came two years later, so I was 23 then. Um, I think, again, the investor said that, like, he walked around a few galleries and I was generally the only person that engaged with him as he walked into the gallery, which is a revealing statement on how the art world is still functioning. The fact that you will have people walking into that space and no one is addressing them is, is I think, in my head completely mad. Um, but so luckily, because I was the only one engaging, he thought the way I was communicating about art was interesting. And then we started the conversation and, and the conversation continued. And a few months on the line, he said, look, I think you will be ready to be invested into, if I put money into you to have your own gallery, you could do the sweat equity, which means that you do all the workload. Um, and you should try LA because that's where I'm based. And I think there's a market for what you do. Um, which always is, is an opportunity that's extraordinary. I think you just say yes to it because you realize that you're never going to have something like this again. Um, I think Los Angeles was a, a school, a nurse's school in many ways because, you know, I think I came up, I came from a background where um, intellectuals were the most important people in the world, uh, not famous people. And yet LA was kind of showing me that Kim Kardashian had more influence than all my intellectual friends. And I think that really bothered me um, until I thought, 
how can I use now my two sides? How can I use the marketing and communication skills I'm being exposed to in building fame here in LA, but kind of bringing back a type of content that I'm a much stronger believer in, which in some extent goes back to my first internship. BBC has always tried to do that. They've always tried to entertain, but fitting you with content that's really meaningful, you know? And I think I never quite escaped that thinking. Um, and then that's why I returned and found an empty art in London and tried to do the talent agency. But it is really sitting between two things. The two principles are, what if we could feed you with a content that's really inspiring, but we'll feed you that content in a way you consume entertainment, um, just so that you can enjoy it. You can have fun with it, but you're actually learning stuff and it's making me making you feel more inspired and, and happier as well. Yeah, absolutely. And And looking at, you know, that time when you founded MT Arts, uh, was there like a, a kind of a time or a place or an experience or something when you had that kind of initial spark of the idea, you know, was, were you getting influenced by things that were happening in, in LA or, you know, for you to come up with quite an innovative model, um, you know, had you kind of, kind of cherry picked different things you saw in the industry and you thought, oh, I'm going to go for this concept. I think I had a very raw idea. Um, but I think the core of any business is to really be flexible and adapt the business to where it needs to be. I think I, I went ahead with the idea. I don't think I understood completely the idea I was pitching. And I think I, yeah, it, what, what felt really lovely about MT Art is the more I started developing it, um, the more I realized how aligned with my values this was and how right it was uh, for me and how much I believed in it. Um, but I think if I look at what I've built now in comparison of when I started, I don't think I could have foreseen what was going to happen, but I thought the idea was good. I thought I had enough drive to pull it through. Um, and I thought I would give it a shot. You know, I was also at 25, you know, it's at the age where you're like, I'm giving it a shot. I'm broke anyway. There's not much, you know, that I have to lose. Again, now that I'm a little bit older, I don't know if I would have taken that risk, uh, but I was a bit naive. I was a bit ambitious. I, I had the right personality to take it on. Um, but yeah, I do think you are, you, I do think I had that perfect business plan, but I was ready to kind of take any turn that the model needed to make it happen. And I was ready to be as hardworking and flexible as I could be for the model to be happening. So I think that's much more what I would advise for entrepreneurs than having the perfect plan. Plans usually go out of the window, but mm. if you respond to the context well, then I think your company would do quite well. Yeah, and 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 through that process, I mean, you kind of had worked in a, in a, in a gallery. Were you kind of uh, testing the concept with artists themselves? I mean, was there kind of a hunger for this type of concept from the artists that you were speaking with directly? Yeah, I guess the well, I, the two things is for my model is to get the trust of the top talents, which are yeah. the artists. And then to make sure they get the top contracts. Yeah. Um, that's something that having had four or five years in the commercial world in the gallery, I understood clearly. It's interesting because I see sometimes people who take uh, loads of administrative people, PAs and like loads of structure for their business. I went for no structure, mm. but I went for a clear understanding of who were my clients and who were the artists. And therefore, how can I make sure that this happens very regularly in terms of the contracts I generate? So that I had very uh, simply put in my mind. I knew I wanted the art of artists to be in the center of cities. I knew I wanted to sell their works. I knew I wanted to have collaborations for them. I knew all of that. Um, so I understood very early on that expanding my database of clients was key. Getting the trust of the artists is obviously difficult. I think realistically, 
um, I was lucky I had a little bit of experience, but it's of course so much easier to get the trust of the artist today. They come to us and they've seen the job we've done with the other artists and they want to be with us. Um, at the beginning, frankly, yes, it is difficult to, to kind of uh, make them trust you. But I think it's fine. I think it's fair enough. You know, artists put their name on the lines. They should be questioning who they've been represented by. I'm glad they did question us. Uh, and I'm glad now they trust us. But I've always had this very clear. I always say this to my team today. Um, my mind is always very clear. My most important people will always be the artists and the clients. And that's, that's all I have all day as my priority. And if any of them is unhappy, that is when I panic. The rest for me, I find it's, it's artificial for the business. It's nice to put it. It's always nice to have structure. But when those few people are very happy, then the end of my business is doing really well. And that's, that's the way your talent manager should, should concentrate upon, you know? Mm. And, and kind of looking at day one, I mean, did you have a black book of artists that you could reach out to? Or like what were those first initial kind of six months to a year of setting up empty art? Yeah, so the artists, luckily I had a few artists that were very good I could reach to. So I, could, I was able to sign them, which was great. Uh, clients, I also had a few clients that were able to support me financially by making a few sales um, at the beginning. Um, and then I went in for raising funds. Um, so basically I went in for the, which was for someone who has another business degree it was very difficult. I had to put a pitch deck and a financial forecast together, which I've never done. But I think that's the best thing I've done. Not because the fund enormously helped me, but more because it got me to think, okay, this is a vision and how are we aligning the vision? How are we getting money from other people to believe in that vision, which was a great, great learning skill. So a few months in, I decided to raise funds. I decided to approach some of my collectors to become angel investors. I'm now 76% shareholder and we've been able to raise 400,000 pounds. But since we're in profit for the past year and a half, we're not going to raise for a little while. Um, but that was a great learning curve because it was tough. Um, raising funds for anyone who's done it is one of the hardest things you can do. Um, but it's great because it, it kind of, you have to know the pitch of your business very well. You have to understand why you're doing it, how you're doing it and with who. Um, and I think you have to convince why this is an investment long term, which is a very different thing than, um, you know, we think it's a lovely idea. Um, so I think that's what I did uh, six months in. It was, yeah, I mean, my sales were not as good in terms of the results during the time I was raising funds because I was very much concentrating on it and I didn't know how to do it. Uh, but looking back, um, you know, you've mentioned TED Talk or Forbes or all these things, but it gave me such a clear idea of who I was and why I was doing the things I were doing because I had been pitching my business so much and mm. so intensely early on. Then I think it was an amazing uh, school again on the business front. Did you find it almost a bit of a challenge in 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 that raising finance for a creative business? Because I think there's almost a stigma where a lot of investors, you know, whether you're a tech platform and they can see an IP or you're building kind of propriety software or, you know, whatever. I think there's, there's almost like, ah, uh, the there's not as much kind of value associated with creative businesses in a weird way. You know what I mean? I, I don't know if you find yeah. it. Like well, I mean, a, it's very difficult because not a product in sense, it's more of a service. I think the creative business have to, um, you have to pitch yourself more mm. for sure. But I think also what I always like to remind to the tech people is realistically, 
uh, William Morris, CA and UTA, which are the three biggest talent agency in the world. So some of them rep Steven Spielberg. They're all worth a billion and they're people businesses. There's yeah. nothing else. There's yeah. no tech involved in that. And MNC Sachi, with who we're partners with, you know, realistically, that's a people business. It's an idea business. McKinsey is doing incredibly well on people's brains. So I think we tend to forget that there are some incredibly powerful people businesses out there who are doing incredibly well for themselves, who are named after the people who started it, who have carried the family values as well, or the people values that they started it and, and they find, you know, and fashion brands have shown that for a long time. So I think it's, it's, but that's the difference is that you are also pitching yourself. Um, and it's difficult to pitch yourself. Like that's the reason why my talents love working with us is no one lack pitching themselves. It's a lot, it's a hard exercise. Um, and I think also as a creative, you lack textures, you lack depth, you lack explaining things for a long time. And in a pitch deck or when you pitch for finance, um, you, everything is stripped off. You have just a few sentences and the numbers have to speak for themselves. And as a creative, you may not be as comfortable with that. Uh, so it, yeah, it is a very challenging exercise, but I think it's necessary because the fact that we are profitable yet um, completely driven by creatives is important because it makes us very independent. And now we can do whatever we want to do creatively because we nail the two sides. Um, so that's why I'm saying it's a good exercise because as a creative, you can forget to look at your numbers. And I think having had that early on, I know my numbers well and I can, I can not, I'm not scared by generating the right numbers, which means I can give more freedom to my creatives to be great, greater creative. So it is, but that's not something that you have as a first skill when usually you're creative. You tend to bury numbers and you tend to also want to spend money on the right creative ideas because you are that type of brain. You don't really think numbers first. Yeah. And um, in regards to, you know, when you're first starting out, you said kind of the, the sales with the artists, was that kind of more of the traditional, you representing an, an artist's ready-made work and then you would sell that online? Yeah. And then and then now, so kind of what it was, the initial offering from when you started MTR and then now, you know, I know that you're representing artists to do kind of commissions with cities and, and, yeah. and different things. So how's that evolved? Well, so when you create something new, you need to prove that you're the right person to implement it and you also need to prove that this is the right idea to be implementing. So that's, that's going to take months and that's going to be a lot of your costs. So yes, of course, the sale of artworks where the reason was able to afford to develop the new ways to represent them. Uh, so it's ironic that like my, my first TED talk about public art um, in cities or my academy papers on the same subject was sponsored by the sales that was making that were incredibly traditional, but you do, you do have to kind of, re you, you need the traditional side to be able to have that cash flow to develop new ideas. Our belief system is that if the artist only has one stream of revenue, that's dangerous. If a business has one single stream of revenue, it's very dangerous. So we have, I still sell a lot of artworks for the artists and we have very good sales record and their pricing are increasing on that level. But I just don't think you should have a stream of revenue. If I look at Rihanna recently, she's the musician she's made more money selling to lvmh than music over the past few years and that's what reshes me i want my artists to sell their works but also have the collaboration and also have their public artworks but also have you know their digital rights as well or images rights because i think same as a business if you only rely on a type of revenue it's bound to fail but of course like the artworks uh, are still selling really well and that still helped us to get here but now what's really nice is I have four streams of revenue 
and it's split, which means that if for some reason people don't buy as many artworks for a few months, that's okay because we also have other stuff coming in and, and we can diversify. And same with my artists, ultimately they can have a diversification of revenue streams coming to their bank accounts, which is really important for them if they want to keep on being creative. Uh, the internet has um, democratized a lot of industries um, and especially with such a visual social network such as Instagram, um, you know, the art world can be a difficult place. And some artists like see the good in platforms like Instagram from a discovery perspective, you know, before, as you said, the elitist model was like, if you were lucky to be selected or be part of an exhibition in a gallery, then, then you were put in front of collectors and, you know, ultimately you'd, you'd get the artwork sold. Whereas now, anyone can be discovered, which is fantastic. But some artists um, think it's a negative in that there's maybe now too much competition. What's your opinion on, on that? I mean, I think if you open the access, of course there'll be competition, like that makes sense. But I think um, it's better to have great competitors to be better than having very few to be less good. So I'm completely pro on competition. Um, my dad is a sport teacher, so I, I believe in the sports value that your competitors are a good thing, you know, is to improve yourself, is not to be threatened by them. Um, in regards to Instagram, I think it's a great luck for artists because it's broken down the barriers of who could enter the industry. 20 years ago, your only way to be visible was to be shown in a gallery. Um, which, you know, let's remind the fact, two thirds of galleries are not um, making money every year. Uh, to be an artist or an art professional because of the unpaid internships and all the stuff you have to do basically means that a certain type of people is can afford to be working in the industry. Whereas now it's opened up the access. You know, you could be making works in your bedroom. You don't need to be paying £10,000 for an art school and to try to be shown in a gallery. You can still have access to a community of people. And if you're good, then you get spotted as same in music. Um, so I think, you know, challenging the gatekeepers is good. Uh, there are still a lot of gatekeepers which we work with, but I think it's that generation has more access. Um, and it doesn't mean you have to know someone who knows someone to be able to be in the industry. It's more and more open. And I think high competition is good. I think realistically, I'm in a talent industry. I've, I've always said this to my team. Our goal is not to support artists, it's to support the best talents. We're not in, you know, if you're an artist and, and you're not that good, I just don't think you deserve to be inspiring loads of audiences. I think for me, like, I want audiences to be incredibly inspired and that takes a lot of talents. Like, I love dancing, but I don't think I deserve to have a career as a, as a dancer. I think those two things are very different. There's an enjoyment into being a creative and I think there is having that special power that you're going to be inspiring loads of people, make them feel uh, different by just the contact of your works. And, and I think that is, needs to be deserved. Not everyone deserves to have that impact on people or has that impact. Um, so I'm completely okay with competition. What unseen opportunities did you see that may result in making your startup a huge success? Well, I think we, I think, are completely changing the way um, artists will be represented in the next 20 years. So right now, let's say you buy an artwork at £100 and then you put it on auction 10 years later because the artist is now worth £200,000, which happens, has happened a lot with the big artists. The artist doesn't have any resale rights. In music, you have loyalties, for instance. Um, the artists have very few contracts. 
Um, and they also have no images rights. If you reshare something on Instagram, there's so far no images rights that's attached to the artist. I completely believe in empowering the talents to make them stronger and also to create those new economical revenues that you can plug in with the talents. So, you know, I want my talents to be empowered and I want them to be earning a lot more from what they're making. Um, I think if that's the case, and I think it could, again, turn around who can be an artistic talent in the industry and it could re-diversify who can enter it, it could re-diversify who can make money from it. And I think from an audience side point, you will be exposed to a whole new type of visual artist as well. So it's a rethinking of the visual narrative for me. And um, and yeah, and I hope it's more diversified over the years to come. If you go to a museum right now, you will see that what is currently depicted is, you know, the visual content of a type of people, but a type of people. And I would like it to be a lot more diverse and diversity will come from that access. What do you think is um, the biggest threat for empty art at the moment? Right now, it's still me. Um, you. <laughs> as, in, as in, I'm still a single founder. Yeah. Um, and I've got uh, small teams in, in London and Paris because we've got now two offices. But of course, as any creatives right now, I am the biggest threat. I, if I get hit by a bus, there is an issue uh, for MTR to continue. Um, as every single founder, I have uh, two employees who are now shareholders, one of my artists was a shareholder and I'm diversifying and training my teams, but it takes time because we have created the, the first hand managers in our industry, so it takes time to train. But yeah, the biggest threat is, is me. I need to basically multiply uh, tan managers by 10 so that it doesn't ever just rely on marine um, that's why you're having a baby as well yeah, <laughs> exactly so no I think but I actually think it's really good news that baby because my teams have stepped in yeah and it's a good you know for any good learning curve yeah, yeah it's great learning curve and I think for anyone that's a single founder, you are so used to be a cultural freak because you worry about everything. Delegating, letting go, training new teams, having the team leading projects is all incredibly good growth. Um, and you have to do that for the survival of the business. I have to make sure that the business is now relying on to a lot more people than it is today. Um, and that's the next challenge, which we're excited to do. But uh, we actually just announced today that the mayor of London London and partners are supporting us in our growth um, internationally and also in terms of hire. Uh, but that's one of our priorities. Uh, so yeah, currently the biggest threat in me, in, in a bad way, but it is the case. And in terms of your management style, though, I mean, was that a challenge that you'd had to come and come in? Because I think sometimes the biggest with for founders is, you know, the, the company is your baby. And then to be able to delegate, that's a big task to be able to do that. Is that something that you're good at or that is a kind of a challenge still? I think it's tricky because in a sense, um, we don't have junior roles. Yeah. Um, you know, our clients, whether that's the artists or the actual clients, um, are our most important people in the business. So if you do make a mistake, it's bad. It's like there's no... You know, you, you haven't made a mistake with a junior member of the team. You've made a mistake with someone that we rely on to for the business. So it is difficult to delegate because it's a job where my talent still calls me at 2 a.m. And that trust between my top clients and partners and my artists is incredibly strong, you know. And you need to be someone that's, first of all, accepting to partially put on the side a small part of your personal life, which is difficult to find in people. Um, and you need to build that trust very quickly. And that trust took me time. You know, my talents trust me because there's a lot of time that has been put into that trust. 
Um, so yeah, it's not easy to replicate. That is the reason why there's a control freak now. Um, I'm lucky I have a very good team and, and I think the management style that I have is I do voice my anxiety uh, to them on things. I'm always going to be very honest. I'm, I think very blunt and very direct. So in a sense, if there's an issue, I will definitely tell you. I'm also better than with the fire type. So I will put you through d- situations that are difficult um, so that you can strive through them. But equally, that means that I won't get people who execute. I will get people who think. So I think so far what my team is telling me if yeah if you're someone that just wants to execute and be told you the worst hire for the agency and you will hate the culture we've built if you're someone that loves initiative wants to build a profile um is going to be exposed to loads of things super young and early and great then i think you know you would really enjoy working for us it's not for everyone but i know that my team loves it because mm. they're basically able to lead things um in, in an industry where you potentially will lead that 10 years later. But that means I put more pressure on you as well, because ultimately if you fail, then that's a really big deal for the company. So and does that, does that come from your father, you think, in terms of the sports men- mindset? I think the, I think my parents were, um, yeah, I think I grew up in a, in a family where if you make a mistake, you pick up the consequences. Um, but we will never put a stop to what you're trying to do. Um, my, my dad was quite strict, so he was more of a no person. So I enjoyed challenging off the no. I think the other side of the family was more, you make a mistake, you just pick yourself up and you assume all consequences. So if you upset someone, you give them a call and you pick it up and, um, you know, you buy them a present or you work it out how you're going to make it up. But um, you are ultimately always on your own to pick up that consequence, which I think it's a good way, you know, when I've made mistake in the past, I don't have a family who is going to say, so sorry, my darling. I have a family who is going to be like, well, technically you haven't done that well, which is why this happened. Um, so I think I have got the same management style towards the employees, but again, I think it enables you to feel, I think, um, quite responsible. You Mm. are leading your life the way you want it. Um, and that's always what I said to them. I will never be the boss that checks whether you're at the office on Monday morning, but I will check results and I will check how people, the feedback of people. And I would, you know, assume you're responsible, but I think it's much nicer than having a boss that clocks you in and out and is always behind your back, but your pressure is higher. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. Um, awesome. I want to talk about two pretty big things that you did recently, your TEDx talk. So, um, you know, a lot of prep and, and everything that goes into those. Um, we've got about 10 minutes left, so mm-hmm. it would be great um, if you could kind of give us an overview of, of each talk and kind of what were some of the key salient points of them. So there's two TED Talk. Um, there's one that looks at why we should have art in cities and the value of that. So right now, if you... Actually, the two can be linked. If right now, as a young girl, you wake up on Instagram. Yeah, and I'll link these I'll link these in the show notes so you can see yeah. that. So right now, if you... Um, a young girl, you... Or young boy, actually, you would start checking your Instagram as you wake up. Uh, 90% of the content of Instagram is similar to a Kim Kardashian. So it's pretty narcissistic, pushing you to consume and quite sexually based. So loads of bikini pictures and uh, pussy pictures. Um, the issue with that is this is not a content that can fulfill you for a very long time. So going back to Haribo's, that's very much of a Haribo type. You have to have many images and it still will not make you feel that content. Then you leave your street and you're exposed to advertising that is exactly reinforcing what you've just been looking on social media. 
again, you feel anxious, you start having insecurity, you feel you need to consume more and you don't feel that great in your own skin. Um, within just a few days, that is basically the exposure that you're getting in terms of visual content. And that is quite a few hours of your day of a content without you realizing it that's getting to you. Um, my thinking is that don't eradicate Kim Kardashian, but please diversify it. You know, again, the one of the equivalents we get I gave in the second TED is I don't eat McDonald's five hours a day. Like I think it's okay to do naughty stuff, but just you know diversify it again uh, with things that are healthier. So if you look a lot at this content, just make sure that you also look at a content like nature or art that actually makes you feel calmer, that makes you think a lot more, or that's something that you feel like, you know, you are, um, yeah, you're learning a content that's more meaningful to you and you're feeling happier about it. And I think with the advertising, I'm saying the same thing. I don't obviously want to eradicate advertising. I understand its value in our society, but I'm saying I would like that young girl or young boy as they walk through the streets that in between adverts they also have public art they also have arts and visual narrative that is not just about you consuming and not just about you you know made insecure That's, to yeah, do something really cool. so i think it's i'm not you know i'm quite moderated at that stage of my life i was a bit more a uh, bit less moderated when i started but i think at that stage i just see the value in diversity of content and i think realistically Social media, what we called visual diets, and what was the second TED talk was saying, look, Kim Kardashian has 140 million of followers posting that kind of content that is not making you feel great. I bet you if I put you in front of Kim Kardashian for like half an hour, <laughs> like realistically, you don't feel great. You can feel hooked. Just stare at it for a whole day, you wouldn't, yeah. Yeah, you would just, like, we all adults enough to know that this does not make us feel great. Yeah. So why on earth are we following content that is not making us feel great, you know? Um, we should be able to recognize that this is like something we consume and that is not something that's really good for us. So again, no eradication of her, but what about following a concept that starts making us feel greater and start tracking this a bit better? Uh, same with our girlfriends or boyfriends, you know, if we only just like the pictures with their heart, uh, that's going to make them feel like that's all they can post. If we start encouraging when they also post about uh, work or something intellectual or something else on well-being, um, well, then they will feel, oh, that's great. I can also post that content. So I think just being responsible on what we post, what we like, what we follow, um, and how can we endorse content that is a content that we would like our kids to look at, uh, frankly, you know, uh, being a mom soon, I would love my son to grow up in a world where your top 10 most influential idols are not Justin Bieber and Kim Kardashian. I think it's depressing to hell. I think they are people like, you know, I just read the interview of Roger Federer, who seems to have way more values than Kim Kardashian on that basis. And I will much prefer my son to be following something like this. So I think it's thinking about you know, by liking, by following them, by clicking on all this stuff, or even watching these TV shows, we're giving them so much power. Are we really sure that's people we want to give power to? Do we not want to just re-diversify a little bit? There are so many people doing great stuff that we should give a voice to that's much bigger. That's on the on the visual content side. And of course, our artists first, you know, they talk about sustainability and female empowerment and all this stuff and, and they're amazing people. So of course, I believe that they should have a stronger voice and that's what's aligned with it. In cities, it's the same way. I think, you know, 
realistically, we live in smaller apartments. We have less and less space to put anything in the apartment. Public spaces will be where we feel we can, you know, um, escape or have a little break. Um, so I would like those spaces to be designed to be as creative or inspiring as possible. Um, and and I think the visual content you put in those spaces is pretty relevant. Um, and I think so all the studies we've conducted when we have implemented public art in cities has shown that people felt much happier. They were much more attached with the place. They were much more interacting socially. So it really added value. So I'm a big believer, again, that like that integration will benefit everyone. Um, and I think it's for us as audiences to realize the power we have. We can demand, you've seen advertising, it's now trendier to put more diversity of bodies and people and faces recently because as audiences, we've demanded that. We can demand things. We can demand things from our governments and our cities and we can demand things from um, the advertising and also the social media that we want. It's not Instagram, the bad guys. It's us who keep on liking the wrong stuff, you know. Um, if we want to change that landscape, it's completely in our hands. We can actually just make that demand. If you follow the recent course of advertising, People have demanded this stuff and things are changing. So that's why I'm saying, sadly, that the blame is not on Kim Kardashian or, you know, the nasty Instagram or advertising companies. It's us as audiences, we need to wake up and think, who am I actually empowering? And am I sure that this is what I want to empower? And taking it back with the example of the kids is, do I want my kids to grow up in that kind of environment? And if the answer is no, then, well, I think you know what to do. You can just... In re-empower a new type of content. Whoa, Marine from there. <laughs> <laughs> well, a That's awesome. From there. <laughs> um, we are unfortunately running out of time. So last couple of questions. Um, I mean, just quickly, in terms of going back to visual diet, you know, they have, there's a big presentation at Cannes just recently, Cannes Lion Festival. Like, how did you get MNC Saatchi and Rankin involved in that scheme? So um, I was lucky that I came to MNC Saatchi a year ago. Uh, they love the idea. So Emma Sachi, as I'm sure you know, has a long history with art and creativity, which is great because I think they really understood it. Um, and then from that, from when they jump on board, then they were able to approach ranking was then jumped on board as well. So um, it's been great. I think, you know, what's been really interesting is throughout the work I do uh, with the agency, I've worked with people from all fronts and I have so little prejudice left from what an advertising person is to what a socialist console person is, because every time I'm surprised, um, I'm actually being incredibly creative, uh, socially and intellectually minded about this project. Um, so that it's, it's a joy. It's a joy to see that they, you know, it, it constantly shows that there's not such thing as like a type or a prejudice to a type of industry, but I'm has been a great support. Amazing. And lastly, what is the future of MTR? So for us, it's an exciting time. We've been approached for acquisition, which so far we've said no to, but that means our business is looking strong. I think, you know, we have a few stars on the uh, currently that have been made by the talent agency. Um, so we are keen to have more and more stars that you will recognize in our sector and you will know that we've made them. Um, in terms of the agency after that, like uh, international growth is why London and Partners is very key for us that we just got that support program. Um, and then the other thing is, yeah, maybe at some point a bigger talent agency will acquire it to have an artist branch. Who knows? 
for me, as long as my talents strive, as long as we get people to rethink the way things are done, I'm happy. I don't really mind uh, the process after that. But um, yeah, it's a really special time because it's a time where we are collecting a lot of the hard work we've done in the first place. So it's a much nicer place to be. Amazing. And where can people find you? What are the social channels for MC? So we are pretty much everywhere because we're millennials. Um, so we have MT Art Agency um, on Instagram. We have it also on Facebook. We have it on Twitter. We have it on LinkedIn. Uh, I personally, as a founder, try to always show the behind the scenes. I have my personal Great. Instagram. And then the company is showing you the very polished corporate side because it's all about the artist and we don't want anything else to interfere with that vision. Um, so I find that usually people like the behind the scenes of my team, the artists and the company because we're all showing you different sides of what it means to be a talent agency. Amazing. Well, sadly, we've run out of time, but that's been so inspiring, so insightful. Thank you so much for your time, Maureen. Uh, we could have done easily another hour, um, but maybe sometime soon. But thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast can intrigue, inspire, and provide some key tips and tricks for a lot of people. I would really appreciate your help to grow the community. If you know anyone that you think would enjoy this podcast, then please send it their way. And if you can subscribe and leave a review, it would mean so much and it really supports the show. Thank you and see you next week.